Who's this? Oh, you're an entrepreneur? Oh, you're a real estate investor. Oh, you're trying to learn from those who did it. Well, come into the lab then. Put your white coat on, gloves on, notepad, and let's build y'all. Real estate experiment, what is happening y'all? Today we have Mauricio Raul here with us. Shout out to the French, another French <laughs> connection there. Uh, listen, I'm excited to have you uh, join Mauricio, obviously. Um, we connected and you're doing a fantastic job. First of all, I got to commend you. You're doing a really good job of, of, of getting your word out and what it is that you do. And uh, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll put in the plug. If you guys don't know Mauricio, I would actually like to ask how you actually present yourself to people because not only you're very involved, you're a speaker, you're uh, obviously an attorney, but you're a very niched attorney. And I want to even hear, even if you would even call yourself that, how you present yourself, because you're also a real estate investor. So, Tell the people what you do. I know your 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 firm, Premier Law Group. Is that correct? Is that who you're currently yeah. under? Tell yeah. tell us how how you would actually. What do you do for a living? Tell us. <laughs> well, the the serious answer is uh, I'm a syndication attorney, uh, okay. really SEC lawyer. But I usually say most people know syndication better than SEC. Right. So I'm a syndication lawyer. The joke, the the sort of the, the joker in me says I, I help people stay out of jail. Uh, because that's what I do. I just make sure that syndicators who are raising money for their deals, just make sure they do it legally in compliance with federal and state, uh, federal and state laws. And look, let's be honest, you're probably not going to go to jail if you screw it up, unless you're, you know, unless you're defrauding your investors like Bernie Madoff. Obviously, plenty of people have gone to jail because of violation of securities laws, but most people probably aren't out there doing Ponzi schemes and really trying to uh, defraud uh, and separate investors from their money so they can go on, you know, expensive yacht vacations. Got it. So, so we're talking about basically investors who are raising capital today. And obviously, you know, um, our community is full of investors or entrepreneurs who might be interested in being a limited partner or general partner. Do you want to talk a little bit about who you're really representing, who you're protecting? Because that's the question that I have, right? And then, and later on, I'll probably ask, you know, which which side of the question I should be asking, you know? And, and so let's talk about that. We're talking about syndication. Who are you representing and what are you really protecting on the deal? I, I represent the sponsor, uh, which uh, typically is the individual, although technically I actually do represent the issuer. We got a little bit technical there. Okay. Usually the LLC. So whenever a syndicator puts a deal together, they're going to create an LLC. That's where investors are going to invest into and become part of that's the issuer and that's who I represent. And, and where that becomes important is if there's multiple sponsors, co-GPs, and there's a dispute between the GPs, then I can't really get involved because that would be a conflict for me. Uh, I really do represent the interests of the LLC. And if there's a dispute among you guys in the sponsorship, everybody needs to go get their own lawyers. <laughs> really? Yeah. yeah. So, I, okay. That's really interesting. Yeah, I'm glad you yeah. said that. But I definitely do not represent um, the passive investor, the, the limited partners. I do not represent their interest whatsoever. Um, I'm happy to talk to them, but my, it's usually because a client of mine, the sponsor, you know, is trying to get an investor in and they've got questions and I'm happy, always happy to answer questions. But my fiduciary and legal responsibilities are to the, the issuer and, and their, their sponsors, their GPs or co-managers or whatever the structure is. That's fantastic. And I think that's what we'll get right into today because we'll, we'll get a chance to, I think it's important for the listeners or, or you know, we got Mauricio in the lab and this is, this is really cool because you're an expert and you're able to not only do, I think you, 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 um, you sold yourself a little short. You're also an investor, which is cool because you get to see both lens and you've raised capital yourself. Am I correct? So yeah. 
So I think it'll be great to understand, you know, what things a, a first-time syndicator should look out for. But before we even get into that, I want to get into a little bit of you because I, I, I always believe that you're a representation of your business and, and the person, the individual themselves. And so tell me, a lot of people are lawyers. How did you get into this niche? Did you know right away? Did it transition? And tell me a little bit about that. I, I barely knew I wanted to be a lawyer. I honestly couldn't think of anything else to do when I graduated from college. And so it was like a default. I went to law school. And then I got really, really fortunate. And I went, I found a really great law firm to where I got recruited out of law school and went to work for a, a, a large, actually the largest uh, law firm in Long Beach, California. Uh, and they did securities and maritime, but primarily I was working on really litigation, but it was it, both in securities and, and, uh, and maritime. And that's how kind of I got to cut my teeth on the securities world. I used to represent the, you know, JP Morgans and Prudentials and, um, you know, Goldman Sachs of the world. But it was all litigation. So it was always, you know, whenever one of those guys got sued, that's when I would be brought in. I would then respond to the complaint. I'd go through the discovery, depositions, motions, trial work, appellate work, and all that fun stuff. Uh, so it was very antagonistic, right? You're always dealing with the plaintiff's lawyer, and you're just trying to defend your client to the best of your abilities. Then what happened is as I'm living that lifestyle of the law firm, I realized very quickly that that's not what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. I was very, very fortunate to come across the Little Purple book written by Robert Kiyosaki, The Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Of course. That's a long story in and of itself, but that essentially led me to find the real estate guys. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of them. They've got a, a great Definitely. show, and very educational as well. And I was there. I, I actually left my practice, the law firm, and joined their, their company and became their general counsel. So mm -hmm. I was, uh, I've been Robert Helms' attorney, now personal attorney for the last 15 years. And that's where I really cut my teeth in the syndication specific, uh, no longer doing litigation, but on the syndication side, because back in those days, the real estate guys were just doing a ton of syndications. And so I took over all that, that work and did all their asset protection. Um, and then obviously liaised with all the outside counsel. And then that kind of slowly, you know, they've got a really large following. And, and so people started approaching me separately about helping them do stuff. And so with their permission, I started kind of growing this little side hustle, so to speak, as I, while I was working with them. And that kind of grew into a full-blown practice where I, at some point we decided I was going to go do the practice and obviously retain them as a VIP client. But that's kind of how the business started back in 2006. And, you know, when you start, you put, you know, you do anything that puts food on the table, but ultimately I withered that down uh, to basically syndication and asset protection. And then about, I don't know, seven or eight years ago now, I made the decision to go full-time 100% syndication. So as of today, 100% of my practice, my personal practice is syndication and 99% of my clients are real estate investors. And I want to say 98% are real estate transactions. I've got a couple of, uh, with all due respect, I love them all, but some, some, some of my crazy real estate uh, clients, they're, they're doing cryptocurrencies, they're doing you know, stock uh, option trading stuff, but they're all primarily doing you know, multifamily, uh, um, mobile home parks, self-storage, single family, wow. funds, portfolio, whatever. So um, that's what I've been doing now for the, the last seven years. And then just recently we brought in into the law firm uh, a real estate attorney, a transactional attorney, real estate, because everybody thinks that's what I do because I'm affiliated with the real estate guys. Mm -hmm. So everybody thinks I'm a real estate attorney and I'm not. And so we brought in a, a really top-notch real estate attorney and now she handles all the real estate, you know, the, the purchase and sale agreement, the, the title work, the lender work, all that kind of stuff. And I stick to the syndication. 
Okay, cool. So let's let's start. That, first of all, that was a, a great recap. It's really I, I find it fascinating to see how people kind of get into what they got into, and and because yeah. I I mean that's honestly what the experiment is all about. You know, you get into real estate and then you open up different doors, businesses. That's yeah. that's who our community is made of. So good for you for doing that. We're glad to have you in here today because now we get a chance to just blast you with questions we've been waiting <laughs> to ask you. So you mentioned syndication, and then you also said asset protection. Are one and two or or, or two or one of two the same? or are they different? How would you look at them? They're two completely different things. I mean, they're, they're related in the sense that if you are doing syndications, you are, at least in my practice, you are investing in real estate. And when you're investing in real estate, you always are owning things. You're, you're never going to own a piece of property, especially if you're syndicating something, you would not own it in your personal name, obviously. You're putting together an LLC. And then most of my clients, the, this, the syndication is not the first piece of property they've ever bought, right? They've right. been doing their own personal investing for many, many years. And they're, they're making a step from maybe buying single family homes for the past 10 years. And now they want to scale up and they want to buy apartment buildings. And so that's why they need to raise money because they don't, they don't have a million dollars in the bank for a down payment or they don't have the liquidity or what have you. So it comes parse and parcel, I think, um, because again, my clients do have all these other assets and we want to make sure that those are protected. Um, a, lot of, a lot of clients of mine own their properties there are other properties, not the syndication stuff, but their own single family homes. They own them in their personal names, for example, which is just from an asset protection standpoint, the last thing you want to do because you have literally unlimited exposure. Uh, no matter how small your single family house is, maybe it's only a, maybe you bought something in Texas uh, a few years ago and you spent $75,000 for the property and maybe you've you got an 80% loan. So you're really into it for like 20 grand. Yeah. And if something happens in that property, uh, uh, you're going to be responsible and it's going to be unlimited. It's not just limited to the amount that's in that house. If they, if they have damages in a million, two million, ten million $10 million because they slipped and fell in your house and they became a quadriplegic or whatever, they're going to come after you for the 10 million. And then you say, well, I don't have anything. <laughs> you do. You have the ability to create income. You have a W2 job and, and that's always something that people can attach. So, you just always want to be careful about you know, how you hold your assets, especially the dangerous assets like real estate uh, and certainly other businesses. And you know, you'd never have a business usually in your personal name. So yeah, that's, it definitely comes parcel and parcel. Okay, cool. So I think where I was going that Mauricio is, is what I'm trying to do is tie the picture of where you come in because, you know, you mentioned that you're not a real estate attorney that, that does the transactional process. You're actually on the, on the syndication part. So I yeah. would like to know, you know, for the rest of us, you know, how early you get involved in, and if you're involved through the lifetime of deal in the beginning of the deal, because it sounds like there's a syndication part and then there's the asset protection part. So let's, let's go through the nuts and bolts first. We got, we got investors trying to raise capital. Um, you specifically uh, specify in regulation D, am I correct? That's, you know, 95%, actually I would say 99% of my clients do reg D, but we've done reg A's before and sometimes right. there's other exemptions that we can look into. But yeah, I would say the vast, vast, vast majority rely on a, a reg D 506, 506B or 506C offering. Okay, excellent. So maybe for the listeners, I think I'm give it some good insight because we might, might know what that means, but maybe at a quick high level before we get right into it, what would you say is uh, uh, the, the main difference between a 506B and 506C? I know which is very fundamental for you, but just so... so yeah, so the main difference is, uh, are, is advertising, really the main one. So with the 506B, you are prohibited from advertising. So you cannot go on... I can't go on this podcast and just scream from the top of my lung that I have a deal that I'm raising money for because that would be advertising. I can't go on social media. I can't go on, on whatever traditional marketing that I want to do. I can't put webinars or seminars together to pitch my deals. Uh, with the 506C, I can. I can do whatever, almost whatever I want. I can certainly 
pitch my deals from social media podcasts or what have you. Um, and then the other issue is just whether you're trying to accept accredited or non-accredited investors. And non-accredited investors are people who don't have a million dollars in net worth, excluding their primary residence, or don't earn uh, you know two hundred thousand dollars a year, or haven't earned for the last couple of years with a reasonable expectation of earning that now. So if you're looking to, to raise money from friends and family and people who, you, who don't have a high net worth, then you're probably going to look at 506B because they, they do allow you to take a limited number of non-accredited, but then the flip side is that you cannot advertise under a 506B. Other people are really good at advertising and marketing, so they go the 506C route, but then they're limited to only accredited investors. Okay, absolutely. And, th and that's obviously very important based on either how much experience you've had or if you're coming into it with connections, et cetera, right? As I, I guess that's what we're going at. Because I, I specifically saw you post this and I thought it was very interesting about how uh, stay off of social media. And, yeah. uh, and that was, uh, I saw that was a very notable post. And I think that's interesting because it's the complete opposite of what we're being told, but you have to be very careful from, um, from, from a regulation perspective is what you're saying uh, for the 506B. Uh, be. Yeah, I mean, people, for some reason, I think people just forget that, um, you know, Facebook and all these social medias, LinkedIn, they're all, they're all pub just like your website, by the way, your website's public, your website yeah. is being blasted to the world. Yeah. And so anything you put on your website, everyone's going to see and is going to be considered advertising to the extent you put something in there. And so I don't know if just people don't think about it, or I think what it really is, is that people, I think most people understand you can't post about your particular deal on social media. I can't say, hey, I've got a, a hundred unit apartment building that I'm raising a million dollars for. But you also can't what's called condition the market, which means I can't drum up interest for my deal. So even if I indirectly kind of insinuate that I have a deal, but I don't specifically talk about my deal, that's also prohibited. And I think that's where people get a little bit caught up because they they clearly are posting things that reference either directly or indirectly, it, it's clear that they're raising money and they're indirectly looking for people to, to call them uh, and pick up the phone and call them and, and, and express interest about their offering. And that's, that's where you would be in violation of those advertising rules. Yeah. So that's, it's funny that you say that because I'm sure, okay, you're being in this space too. And, and now obviously we know the marketing is everything and brand awareness. I mean, you're doing a great job of it. So I just came back from, let's say growth con, right? Like a, a like a Grant Cardone who is obviously working with accredited investors. And we're not yeah. putting anybody on blast or anything like that. But I think it's a good example because we know who he is. How do I even, how does he separate the two? Because I believe he even had a, a, a tier, uh, I believe a regulation A tier two right. fund as well. So how does that's he right. do that? That's, right. that's, that's why I said, you know, it's not all, not a hundred percent of it is reg D. So Grant, uh, there is a way to have your cake and eat it too. There's a way for you to advertise, which is what Grant does, and also accept non-accredited investors uh, with some restrictions. Uh, and, that's, and that's called a reg, like you mentioned, a regulation A, a reg A. We actually call it a reg A plus, but it's basically a tier one uh, reg A. And that does allow you to advertise and then take non-accredited. The challenge is it requires a mini registration with the SEC. Mm -hmm. So you can't just do it like a reg D where you just, your, your attorney drafts up the docs and you, it's an exemption. So when I do most of the, when I do a reg D offering or somebody raises money under a 506B or a 506C, we don't run it by the SEC. We just do it, right? Oh, my okay. job is where we do it right. right? We, my job is to make sure that you're doing all the disclosures, you're putting all the information that the investors need, but we don't ask for anybody's permission or approval, or it doesn't have to be cleared by the SEC. Under a reg A, it does. So on a reg A, you actually file uh, the statement with the SEC, you have a lawyer look at it at the SEC, they'll give you feedback and comments and they'll come back to you and then you get a second draft in and they'll review it. and you go back and forth and it takes about six months to get it through the process and approved. 
But once it's got the SEC stamp of approval, that's when you can go out and now advertise and take some non-accredited investors. And I say some because you're limited to 10% of their net worth or income, whichever is highest. But that's how Brant is able to take, you know, his investors are giving him 500 bucks, 100 bucks, 1,000 bucks, 5,000 bucks, really small amounts uh, because um, they are non-accredited and they don't have that much. But because it's been pre-approved by the SEC, you can do it. Now, the, the, the drawback is because of that process and because it's a lot more work, your, your fees are a lot higher. Your attorney fees are probably three or four times more expensive than usual. And then you have all the compliance. I mean, God, you know, it's not quite as a public, you know, if you have a public company that's in the Dow Jones, right, or in the S&P 500, you see these people, they file quarterly reports and they have yeah. to an annual statement. It's something similar on the Reg A. You've got annual compliance reports, quarterly, semi-annual, ent uh, entry reports, exit reports, audited financials. So it just gets pricey. And so unless you're raising, you know, $50 million, $20 million, $30 million in a fund, it probably doesn't make sense for you, but that's what, that's what Grant and, and other people who have a big following tend to do in order to get the, the advertising and also be able to take uh, lower amounts from non-accredited investors. Okay. That, that was a great explanation because I, I didn't know that. And I think that, that that's very valuable for it, for us to know to, you know, Hey, you should always have someone like you on your team uh, mm -hmm. so you don't muddy the waters, but yeah. I think it's, it's good. It's good. High level knowledge. All right. We like to get real tactical. So we're yeah. in the lab right here. We got our lab coats on. I want to get in. So, Look, there's a lot of us who are maybe investing. They've been using our own money. They've been doing JVs. They have a portfolio to speak. And now it's time for me to raise capital. What is the number one thing as an investor that I should do if I'm putting together a list of things at real high level, right? Because I know you do this every day. What is it? Where do I even start, Mauricio? Like, what should be my first instinct? I might have a small network. I might have some capital. What do I start? Do I call you first and get you on my team? What is the next, what are the pieces? How do I put the pieces together? Look, I think the first, if you really want to talk high level, the first thing you want to be doing is, is, is finding your investors before you even start looking for deals. Um, a lot of people think, hey, let me find the deal and then the investors will come. Trust mm -hmm. me, they don't and it takes a long time. You really want to be establishing relationships ahead of time so that when you do find a deal, you have a pipeline of people that you can present it to that you've been spending time over the last six months, a year, two years, three years, whatever that you've been cultivating. And so it's going to meetups. It's, it's going to meet more people. Put yourself in situations where you can meet investors, get on the phone with them, get to know them, create those relationships, find out what they want, right? Because some investors want cash flow. Some investors want, you know, growth stuff, just like any other stock portfolio. So find out what they're looking for so that when you find something, you can give it to the right type of people. I mean, you're not going to give... I'll give you an example. If you're doing a development deal that's not going to cash flow for the first two years, you're not going to give that to somebody who absolutely desperately needs cash flow, you know, of at least 8% every, every year. So that's probably step one is to just get investors in there and start adding value. I think you and I are both on the same page where you do that by adding value, uh, educating investors about real estate, educating about the markets, educating them about maybe, you know, the fact that they can invest with the IRAs. That's a big one for me. I just made a post um, which I'll be talking a, bit, a little bit more about that. One of my, one of my dear friends, um, you know, Ken McElroy, who's probably best known for Rich Dad Advisor, he told me one time, hey, look, if I was starting all over again, I would probably just go after IRA folks because they don't even know that they can use that money to buy real estate. They've been right. just brainwashed to say it's in the stock market. And I don't know about you, but I'm a little bit concerned that the stock market might be a little bit frothy these days, although it has yeah. come down over the last couple of days. Um, so anyway, so just educating the public so that when you, again, you do find a deal, 
uh, then you've got somewhere to go. Obviously, you want to get educated. This is not a you know this is not something to take lightly when you're taking uh, investors' money. You you want to know what you're doing. So I would if you're not already at that level, you know I would be educating myself left and right. I'd be going to as many seminars as I can. There's plenty of them out there. Um, maybe even getting some coaching, but just just really understand whatever asset class you're going to buy. You know, look, if you're buying single family homes, that might be one thing. But if you're going to step up to commercial and buy multi, you know, multifamily and buying, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 unit apartment complexes or more, that's a specific skill set. You don't want to be taking, you don't want to be, you don't want to be learning on your investor's dime. If anything, I would probably recommend doing a small one yourself first. So at least you've got some, some thing in your back. Um, and then the more tactical thing is obviously in terms of where I come in is, is um, you know, once you do identify a property and you start putting in offers, right? And trust me, these days you'll be putting in offers and it'll be rejected left and right because there's so many people out there. So people get discouraged because they, they do their underwriting. They've gone to all these courses and they, they know and, and they submit an offer and, and it turns out they, they're not even close because the, the person who gets it is offering way more. And so anyway, it's just a lot of times, you know, uh, of, of submitting offers, getting rejected. But at some point, you'll get an offer accepted. And that's when I come in. That's typically when clients will call me. Now, I've probably spoken to them already because people call me, just kind of learn. I like the same thing for me. I like to get to know people ahead of time anyway so that when that, when that day does happen, we've already spoken. Hopefully, we've already got a rapport. So it's just we're ready to go. But that's when I would get a call and say, Mauricio, I got my, finally got an LOI accepted, a letter of intent. Uh, I need to get in the contract, and so you know, let's let's start the the syndication process. Which, by the way, starts with if you really want to get tactical now, you're putting our our uh, our white lab coats on. Oh, definitely, definitely, uh, I is, love uh, it. Is putting together the business plan. So that's okay. going to be step one. Once you've got all that preliminary stuff out of the way, and you're in contract, and you've got your lawyer lined up, then typically we want to see a business plan, and that's not just the OM or the offering memorandum. That's not the property package that you get from your broker. Mm -hmm. you Certainly, take information from that and put that into your business plan because you, you want to have a section in your business plan about the property, right? Just the, the facts about it, the pretty pictures and all the stuff. But the business plan is, is where you tell your investors, look, this is what I'm going to do with your $100,000 that you're going to give me or the $50,000 or whatever. I'm going to go and put it in a down payment to buy this property. I'm going to spend all this money on value add and fixing it up. I'm going to spend all this time marketing it so I can you know increase the occupancy once I've improved it. And and I'm making all this stuff up, up obviously, uh, and, I, and I want to, uh, you know, increase the rent, and then that's going to increase our net operating income, which obviously increases the value of the property. And then I'm going to either sell it or refinance. Whatever it is that you're doing, that needs to be spelled out in this business plan, and that's always going to be step one. Now I'm curious because uh, you're doing a fantastic job walking us through, by the way, uh, and you're going exactly where I want to go. When I start working with you, is my expectation that, hey, let's get on another call. Here's what I drafted. Let's review. Is it like reviewing a paper or are you going line by line and saying, oh, hey, Ruben, yeah. are you sure you want to do that? How, yeah. yeah. I thought everybody did this, but I probably not. So yeah. people get a little shocked. So I, when I say I, I got my team, obviously. So either me or my managing partner or whoever, we'll go line by line. We will re when we get a draft of, of your business plan, we're going to go through that thing line by line. We'll have a thousand questions, a thousand comments. We're going to get on a phone call in probably about an hour to go through those questions and comments. Mm -hmm. Then that gives you homework because you're going to go do a second draft based on all of our, uh, of our feedback. And again, it just depends on what that first draft looked like. Some clients, look, I've got some clients that have done 30 deals together. Mm -hmm. They give me a business plan. It's 99% done. I've had other clients give me a two-page Word document, and we're basically starting from scratch. So, but we'll do the comments. It will give it back to the, the client. The client will make revisions. They'll send it back to us. We'll do that again, and hopefully we only have 100 questions and 100 comments this time, and we'll do a third draft, fourth draft. So we do several drafts, 
until that business plan, we're all comfortable that it's done, what I call locked, so everything's good to go, that's when you can then send that business plan to your list of investors that you've been cultivating over the past uh, specific time frame. And then from there, we start drafting the documentations. There's, there's all these disclosure documents that we have to draft. This, these are the, the PPM, the private placement memorandum that you've probably heard of, yep. where we list all the risks and all the disclosures and all the important information for the investors. But while we're doing that, and we're pretty freaking fast, but you know, we'll get it done in about a week. But once, once you're, while we're doing that, you're, you know, the investors are looking at your business plan, you're getting on phone calls with them, you're, you're talking about the deal, you're answering questions, maybe you're doing a webinar, you know, whatever it is that you want to do to, to, to raise the money. Um, you can't take any money yet, obviously, until they do receive the, the PPM on the disclosure documents, they have to read all that and sign it. Uh, but that's kind of the, the, the general process on the syndication side. Now, if we're doing the real estate piece as well, the, the real estate meaning we've, we've also before that we've obviously we've done the purchase and sale agreement, you know, because that's, that's going to be really step one. And then we're, we're reviewing title and we're working with title. We're working with the lender to get all the documentation for the lender. We're reviewing all the environmental reports. All that stuff happens parallel if we're okay. doing the, the transactional. And then kind of the third parallel, to be honest with you, is also the entity formation. So while all this is going on, we're creating all the LLCs. We're putting together the LLC that's going to, the investors are going to invest in. We're putting together management companies. We're putting together all these LLCs and drafting those documents uh, so that when finally the investor's like, great, I've got the docs, I've signed. Now they've got to go wire money somewhere. So you've got to make sure you've got your bank account and all this stuff set up for the money to be received. And that's kind of the last, the semi last piece to it, because there is one last piece for the states that, that you're probably familiar with. Yeah, so that's that was fascinating. I think you covered all the, or I guess the the pieces under your large umbrella where you you talk about there's business assessment, there's asset protection compliance systems, and then there's the offering guidance. and it, And it sounds like for you, it's a it's a one stop shop, uh, and and your 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 team kind of kind of helps you uh, put that together. Yeah. I, I'd I'd like to. I'm I'm curious as to how much. Um, because uh, this is where I, wanna, I think the listeners will get a lot of value when, when I, uh, I'll ask you the following question in regards to, you know, what are the common mistakes or things yeah. in question, but how much input is it more? Because, you know, I've been there, I'm a licensed broker. I can't compare it to being a lawyer because it, it's very, you know, obviously it's, it's a complete different pro- pro- uh, profession, but in the sense of how much are you giving guidance versus saying, Hey, no, no, don't do that. Or would you consider doing this? Or I've seen my other clients do that. Like, do you try to get that involved? Do you try to also protect yourself? So it's not like, Hey, Mauricio, you told me to do this. And now I'm in, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I'm yeah, curious, yeah. right? Like where do you draw that line of, of guidance yeah. versus support? Look, this is mostly for first time syndicators because you know, if somebody's already done three or four, they kind of know what they want to do. But if it's a first time syndicator, we spend a lot of time on structure and we, I, we do roll up our sleeves and help clients figure out how to put it together. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we've, we've seen hundreds and hundreds of these. And so, you know, even trying to figure out how you're going to get compensated or what the splits are, are you going to put all a right. preferred return in there? Are we going to do it as a tick? Are we going to do it? All these questions I can always say, look, they'll ask me like, Hey, how would you do it? And, I, and then I've got my answer, you know, based on my experience of seeing so many of these and I can guide them for sure. And I love doing, that's actually the fun part mm. of doing it. It's kind of the creative process, which uh, typically lawyers don't get to do, but I love that because, you know, in my mind, there are very few things you cannot do. I mean, as long as we're disclosing things and make sure we're very clear that we let the investors know exactly what we're doing, we can structure our deals pretty much any way we want. Um, And so, you know, I don't want to get too creative because that'll make it complicated and and investors will get confused, but you know, we we can come up with some really interesting strategies and I, I, we definitely get involved, especially with the first time syndicators. 
Okay, great. So you've made it very clear that you're, you obviously have the best interest for the LLC or the, the, the general partners. Uh, maybe for flipping the role, you might have some insight on this because I'm sure, you, again, you're on both sides here, which is, I yeah. think is fascinating. What is one thing maybe I should be looking at if I'm, if I'm reading a, a, a PPM or, an, or uh, as a limited partner? Are, are there some things that I should be looking out for that a general partner should be or Oh, for sure. Offering me, yeah. yeah. What are some key I mean, things maybe that you think? I think, that, look, I think the first thing I would, as a passive investor, the first mm-hmm. thing you should be doing is your due diligence on the sponsor themselves. I mean, there's one thing to draw it up on a piece of paper and, and you know, we can all make up numbers and put them on a pretty spreadsheet, but, you know, yeah. can they execute? Do they know enough? Are they experienced enough? Do they know what they're doing where they can actually execute? And I feel safe with them. I mean, I think that's probably the number one thing. I mean, no matter how great the property is, no matter how great everything looks, if, if the sponsor isn't, isn't good, that's going to be problematic. Um, you can always get, I think, the bad deal. A sponsor can make a bad deal a good deal, but if you got a good deal, the sponsor could definitely make, make it bad. So that's the one thing. The other thing I think you've got to be aware of, you know, you said something about reviewing the PPM. Let's make sure there's a PPM to begin, begin with. Um, I don't do this anymore, but I used to review other people's, you know, clients would call me and say, hey, I want to invest in this deal. Can you review the docs for me? And so um, I've got a little bit of experience and, and, and anecdotes there. But number one, make sure there's a PPM. If there's not a PPM, ask why and make sure it makes sense. Uh, a lot of times people are cutting corners and if they're cutting corners on the PPM side, where else are they cutting corners? And I, mm. I see a direct correlation when I come, they hear, I hear some made up story as to why they, they don't have a PPM, even though my client's a non-accredited investor, which is generally required. Then, you know, years later, it's happened a couple of times where years later, they'll call me, literally a year and a half later, they'll call me and they're like, yeah, this guy's a fraud and, you know, he stole all my money and, you know, how do I get it back? So just making sure there's a PPM. But then the other thing, look, I, I do think it's worth, by the way, parenthetically, having a lawyer take a look at it, you know, spending $500 or $1,000 or whatever to have an attorney look at it. Because the other thing you want to make sure is that the documents match up. You're going to be probably reading a pretty brochure, a pitch deck. Maybe you're looking at the PPM, but at the end of the day, it's all about what's in the operating agreement because that's, that's the document that really governs what can and cannot be due, what compensations do, what all the, the processes and procedures are. So if they told you, I'm making this up, but if let's give you an obvious one, if they're telling you, yeah, you're going to be getting a, an 8% preferred return, for example, mm-hmm. and in the operating agreement doesn't say anything about a preferred return, you don't have a preferred return, right? Or wow. if the operating agreement says it's a 7% preferred, you're getting a 7% preferred. So just making sure that the PPM and the pitch deck or the business plan matches the operating agreement. That's, that's another big thing I would look out for. Okay, that's awesome. So uh, transitioning into the keeping it real section. So I'd like to definitely hear what your thoughts are, are, are what is the biggest misconception that uh, you think people have about raising capital? That it's easy. <laughs> there's a great, <laughs> oh man, there's a great, uh, I don't know. There's a great, there's a great thing. I, yeah. I think that's, that is like other, other people's money, right? Just, you know, it's just going to come pouring in. Right. Like, I think yeah. I have, this is a, just a personal opinion, but because there's so much money floating around the system because of what's been going on for the last 10 years, yeah. there's just a lot of money out there. And so, and things are going well, obviously in the economy. So it's not that hard these days to raise money because uh, everybody wants to get into real estate and everything's been going great. So I think that's one of the misconceptions is just, it's, it's easy to, to raise money. Um, and then it's, it's an e- that it's easy in general. I mean, I think, you know, I'll, you'll be amazed at the amount of people I talk to who are coming in from the single family home and they think that because they bought six or seven single family homes that they now are professional real estate investors and, and they can handle a commercial and they, they don't even understand that the lending is completely different and the requirements of, of, of the investor has to have just to get a loan 
is completely different from getting, getting a loan for a single family home. You, you get a mortgage, you've got a credit score, you've got income, but if you're doing a commercial, they're looking at the property, you've got to have net worth, for example. People, people just don't know this. Like you've got to have net, you've got to have enough net worth to cover the loan, even if it's a non-recourse, and you've got to have, you know, a 10% of that has to be in liquid funds. So if you're getting a, you know, a $3 million loan, you guys have all got to have $3 million in net worth, and after close, you've got to have $300,000 in liquid cash somewhere, either cash or, you know, uh, uh, liquid securities like, um, like treasury bills or, you know, IRAs or whatever. So it's just a different animal. So I think it's, it's just important to understand that, that you've got to do, really educate yourself and not, not just think that because you've done a little bit of real estate on your own for your own account that you're ready to go raise money because it's a huge responsibility to, to take on other people's money. This is their hard-earned cash that they've been saving up and they're entrusting it to you. You better know what you're doing with it. Now, were you? I'm curious as to 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 the point you just made, Mauricio, about the residential to going a little bigger. And I think syndication is definitely one thing. But would you would you advise, or I guess from your experience, uh, what do you think the connection between residential and commercial? Would you advise people to get started re- with residential first, or do you think there's a connection, or would you even say it's just the foundational knowledge of understanding the different different animal that you're playing and that should really double down on? Like, is that transition necessary? I know we it, we always yeah. hear of it. Everybody has an opinion on that. Actually, I think, I don't know if it was my post or somebody else's post, and there was a big yeah. debate about that. Some people, look, there's three, three schools of thought. You know, if I'm in single family, that's good enough. Or mm-hmm. the one I was really trying to figure out was if you're doing a, you know, a seven or eight unit apartment building, is that enough? Is that the same as, as running a 50 unit or a hundred unit? Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I think they're different animals. Uh, so I would recommend starting with single. I think single. I, I would start. Rec- I would recommend starting not with single families, probably with like fourplexes, you know, triplexes or fourplexes, just to get your feet wet. Um, uh, but eventually, you've got to make the jump into into multifamily. That's really where it, the is that. What, and I'm sorry, Marisa, to cut you off. I just want to make sure I take that point home because I think you made a really good point. You you mentioned to get your feet wet. Do you think that's more psychological or is it actually analytical? Because we're talking numbers, or is it both? What are we What are we saying here? I, I think it's, I think it's both. I think it's, it, if you've never purchased a piece of, if you've never bought a piece of property before, it's going to be really hard for your first property to be a bigger deal. I think just having your feet wet and just having the under, you know, under your belt, you've got three, four, five or six of these units on your own. You, you, you're just familiar with legal docs. You've seen what a purchase and sale agreement looks like. You've got, you've dealt with lawyers, you've dealt with lenders, even though commercial is completely different. I feel like you've, you've actually gone through that experience uh, and it's, you know, we always hear about this paralysis that your first deal is the hardest deal anyway, you know, and it's probably where you're going to maybe make the most mistakes. Why not make a mistake with a, a small duplex or triplex or fourplex as opposed to a hundred unit apartment complex with a million dollars of investor money? I get you. Get you. Well, well, point well taken. <laughs> um, what do you, what is the biggest mistakes you see syndicate, syndicators make coming into your office? What is something you catch? Is there something maybe at the business plan level? The biggest mistake, um, you know, I think the biggest mistake syndicators in general make is that they don't realize what they're doing is selling securities, uh, mm. especially first timers, first time, first time investors just don't understand. They're like, why am I? Why do I have to worry? What I mean, securities? I'm buying a, I'm buying a fourplex, and I want to raise a hundred grand from my buddies. Like, why, you know, why is the SEC even involved, right? Um, and so they just fail to see that it's every time, anytime you look, my, my definition is anytime you take money from investors where the returns are generated by your efforts, you're dealing with the security. If your investors are passive and you're active, you're generating the return. 
it's a security and I don't care if there's three people, four people, yeah. it's 50 grand or whatever. So that's probably, and then the more seasoned syndicators, the mistake they make is they think that they can outsmart or get creative where like, well, if I structure it a certain way, then I get around, I get to avoid the securities law. So for example, if I structure it as a tenant in common arrangement where everybody has direct title to the property or a profit sharing agreement or a, a joint venture arrangement that somehow that, you know, alleviates my need to comply with securities law or it's a note. That's another one like, oh, it's not a security because it's a note. These are all securities. The structure itself doesn't matter. It really just depends on who's generating the returns. If you're the one generating and your investors are simply writing you a check and going home, that's a security. That's probably the biggest mistake. And then the ones that I think we've talked a little bit about, the most common other mistakes I see are by far the advertising on 506B deals on social media. That's probably the one of the, if not the biggest, probably one of the biggest. And then the third one, which we haven't talked about too much, is just people getting compensated or paying other people to raise money for them. Uh, oh, wow. dealer. So it's not uncommon, shockingly, that people will reach out and say, hey, you know, if you can raise a million dollars for me, I'll give you X percent of, the G, of, my, of my GP or, and it's a sliding scale. The more money you raise, the more GP you get, the less money you raise, the less GP you get. It's all contingent on how much you raise. And that's all broker dealer activity. And, and, and obviously they're not, they don't have that broker dealer license. And so now they're, they're practicing without a license, which for my clients creates a problem because we're not disclosing that, right? Why would you disclose that you're paying somebody illegally or paying somebody that's not licensed? So you don't disclose that. So it's a failure to disclose. And on the flip side, the person receiving the compensation, they're practicing without a license. So they typically will get disgorged, meaning they'll have to return whatever commissions they got plus interest and, you know, whatever else happens to them. But I'm, again, I'm less worried about them. I represent the sponsors, the issuer. And, and that's the concern there is that you are engaged in an illegal offering because you fail to disclose material facts. And now essentially my clients would be guaranteeing investors return because they're going to be on the hook for any losses because they didn't comply with the securities laws. Oh, wow. Jeez. Okay. Well, I guess this ties into the, the, the best advice you, you've, you've sat with someone and given or re, you've received in the other seat, you, yourself being a real estate syndicator. What do you think that would be or what comes top of mind, would you say? Uh, don't, I think the one that comes top of mind, if it's the most, the one that just you put me on the spot, the one that comes back in my, don't just take somebody's money just because it's a big check, right? That might be at the end of the day, the most expensive money you've ever taken. Uh, I've seen scenarios where, you know, you, you know, somebody wants to write you a $500,000 check and you're like, oh, wow, this is huge. And, and you want to do whatever it is to take it, but it may not be right for that person. That person may end up just being a thorn in your side. Um, so just, just be, just do, just be smart about things like that. I've got a client, um, you know, I'll say it's right now. who's looking into, you know, into some stuff that I just, you know, it, it looks like a scam. I mean, it literally, and I've had other clients fall prey to this where, you know, they're, they're, they're so desperate for funding that they, you know, there's, there's scam artists out there that try and that tell you, Hey, I've got $2 million to loan you and go through some process and, you know, send in some money. And, and the next thing you know, you send them 50 grand as a, you know, some kind of a feed it just gets going and then that's the last you hear from them and they run away with your money. So I've definitely been a part of uh, representing clients who've been in a lot of scams like that. So just be careful when it comes to money, people get carried away and it's like, Oh, it's yeah. but just, just be smart about it and do your due diligence and do background checks and get referrals and do all that fun stuff when you're, when you're dealing with anytime you're going to give anybody some money. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let, let's hop into the, the, the core rapid fire questions and I'm going to creep. I'm, I'm going to be a little creep in the lab here. Listen, I, I see tools of Titans over your shoulder, oh, uh, uh, but I got to ask you what's, you got a favorite book. I got to get back to uh, the, the fundamentals. What's your favorite uh, book? 
Yeah, probably. I've got a couple. So I, originally, I would have probably said, you know, Rich Dad, Poor Dad for me changed changed my life quite a bit. Uh, but recently, I was reading a book called Traction by Gene Whitman. Oh, that's, that's a great, great one. Yeah. Uh, if, you're, if you're a business owner and you're looking into that, I think that's a great book. Uh, and then the E-Myth. And for me specifically, if you're an attorney, it's called an E-Myth for Attorneys. Uh, so those are probably the three books that come to mind that have really been impactful. Good for you. Best habit that serves you every day? Uh, I add value to my syndication community. Nice. Best tool that helps you excel throughout your day? Best tool that helps me, other than coffee? Uh, it, best tool it, could, it, could, it could be an application. It could be anything. Um, it's, I mean, if it's, got a, it's, my, it's my computer. I can't live without a computer. I mean, that, that, that's what allows me to be virtual. And, you know, all of our employees are, are virtual. And without, the, I guess it's more the internet. Let's just, even that, the yeah. internet is really the biggest tool for me. I couldn't, well, I couldn't even fathom doing it without the internet. What a time to be alive, right? Yeah. <laughs> no kidding. Uh, one 300 unit apartment building or three apartments of a hundred units. I don't think I've got enough information to do that. So I'm just going to say, I don't have enough info. I, need I like info. that answer. I would want someone on my team like you to say that answer yeah. To, to, yeah. to receive more information. That's yeah. just a question I like to see if people like the leverage or one roof or multiple roofs. I, I always like to ask investors, you'd be surprised you get 50, 50 every time. You know, a 300-unit apartment complex in Afghanistan or 300-unit <laughs> complexes in Dallas, Texas, downtown. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, great segue. Class A or Class B? Say that again? Class A or Class B? In general? Yeah. Any context there or just literally that's, that's the question? Most, Class a, uh, Class B? I guess we have a lot of multifamily apartments uh, 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 investors. So if we're talking multifamily, uh, is oh, there... Oh, would you prefer to be a Class yeah. A or Class B? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, what would you, uh, what do you prefer as an investor? Class A. Interesting. Long term. Cash flow or equity? Uh, both. <laughs> nice. Mauricio, you can't have it all, man. No, but you can, but you can. Maybe I got I to gotta hang out with you more. Self manage or outsource, my friend? Uh, outsource for sure. I don't have any time. I can't do anything myself. You're the, you're the e myth guy, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. All right. If you have one superpower in your business, what do you think it would be? It's the ability to take complex securities matters and make them easy to understand. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm one of the few lawyers that actually speaks English. I know, and I appreciate you for that. You, you broke a lot of good value knowledge, which I will kindly, kindly share with the rest of the community. This was really, really good. Um, what would you say makes a uh, successful, in your case, investor syndi or syndicator? Uh, how would you describe a successful investor or syndicator in one word, Mauricio? knowledgeable mm. love it love it i always ask this last question mauricio what question do you wish i would have asked you that i didn't ask oh you know such a great question uh can i tell a quick story that one of the things i was asked if you yeah. go to a restaurant ask the chef what's the one thing that everybody orders that you guys are known for and then ask what's the one thing that nobody orders but they should and that's kind of the Ooh. um smooth ah uh, you're know. a smooth guy yeah, that's, that's my answer. That's going to be my answer. I'll, I'll, I'll give you value for the, I don't know the answer to that. Okay, no, cool. You know, I always like to put it out there because I, I feel like, you know, sometimes there's things that we want to say and, and, and so I always give the opportunity to share it. But I know the people will definitely get a chance to check out more of your work. Uh, do you want to plug, how can people work with you? You've given so much value. You came in here, you dropped a lot of gems. Where can we find more about you and your team? Um, you can look, check, I've got a YouTube channel under my name, uh, Facebook, please follow me there. Cause I put a lot of content out there. I'm coming out with an ebook 
called The Five Things Every Syndicator Must Know to Stay Out of Jail. Uh, that should be out here in the next month or so. So if you want to copy of that or you just want to ask questions, I'm always happy to answer questions. You can email me at team, T-E-A-M, at premierlawgroup.net. Absolutely. That's beautiful. And I'll definitely make sure we include all that in the show notes. And uh, I'll definitely begin that ebook. I got, got to support my man, man. This is great. Mauricio, this was fantastic. Thanks for stepping in the lab, getting a white coat on, uh, showing, uh, sharing with Experiment Nation what uh, syndication is all about. And as an investor and, uh, uh, of course, as a syndicator and as a, an attorney, um, and I think it was, uh, it was very valuable. And I do appreciate your time, man. No, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. And good luck with everything. Definitely. And just like that, we are out. If you're a real estate professional, a real estate agent, a real estate investor, a lender, a multifamily syndicator, a contractor, you name it, and you're looking to grow your online presence, but you have no idea how to get started or simply don't have the time, at Invested Talent, we help real estate professionals extend their current business to social media. Why is this important? Without this, you wouldn't be listening to this show and your own host, Ruben Kanya, and his team would not have done deals they've done today. As a matter of fact, social media has helped us keep this show together, which now exceeds a billion dollars worth of real estate from our guests collectively. That's right. Our reputation, opportunities, partnerships, and most importantly, real estate transactions were started directly from social media. If you're a real estate professional and you lack an existence on a media platform, Invested Talent can help. Simply go to investedtalent.com forward slash social media and make sure you click the get in touch button to get in touch with our team. Again, that's investedtalent.com forward slash social media and get in touch with our team. You focus on being the brand and we'll help you build it. Now, if you know anything about the lab, you know that we like to give practical advice. So if you feel that this podcast was of any value to you, please be sure to leave us a review on iTunes by going directly to the podcast app. From the show's page, scroll all the way down and leave us a review. If you're watching this on YouTube, please subscribe by clicking the subscribe button and leave us a comment. Lastly, and most importantly, share this episode with a friend you feel will benefit this episode the most. Remember, there's a you and I in build. Let's build, y'all.